we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, hopefully this is not a surprise to you, but we use the Bible. Uh, that's kind of uh, our curriculum. That's the book that we use, which sadly uh, sets us apart from a lot of other churches. Uh, we've heard often over the years that people are so refreshed when they come, uh, and just to know that we're reading the Bible and we're teaching the Bible. And so oftentimes we'll pick a book of the Bible and we will just go verse by verse through the whole book. Uh, and uh, there's a the few reasons why that's uh, an incredibly helpful and healthy thing for a church to do. Uh, number one, you get to hear from God, right? We believe God inspired the writing of the Bible, that it is a book that is on its own level, uh, truly the words of God, and we need to hear them and to know them. Uh, okay, so uh, there's a lot of reasons we gather together as a church. Uh, there are some horizontal reasons that we're here to, uh, to encourage one another, uh, to challenge one another. Um, we are here to give something to God. We're here to give him uh, praise and worship and to sing to him uh, and to give some things that he is rightly due. Uh, but we're also here to receive some things. Uh, and a big way in which we come to receive uh, is to receive what God is saying to us through his word by his spirit. Uh, and so as, as we jump into this text, and it's only two short verses for today, but it is so dense and has such uh, incredibly important information for us to receive and to hear and to heed and to be shaped by. Uh, I want to invite you to stand, uh, and this is going to be on the screen, and you've got obviously your Bible and your device, but I want you to go ahead and stand because I want us to read this together. Again, only two short verses. This is 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. But incredibly important for two reasons. Number one, for the health of your soul. Okay, if you care about the health of your soul, and I'm sure that you do, that's the deepest part of who you are, the wellspring of everything. The, the key to the health of your soul is in here, but also uh, the effectiveness of our witness to others in our community is here. So it's a, it's a, short, uh, it's a short text, but there is a lot packed in it. Uh, and I would love for us, if we can, to just take a moment before I read this uh, and give you a little bit of silence to pray. Um, you can open your hand in a posture of kind of receiving if you want to do that. But I want to get us in a frame of mind uh, to be prepared to hear from God uh, through by His Spirit, through His Word, uh, for some very important things. So take a few moments, take a few seconds, pray for that, and then I'll read. All right, God's Word says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter is writing this to some Christians, many of them brand new Christians, and he says, Beloved, I urge you, very strong language, he's, he's almost, you can picture Peter almost on his hands and knees begging for the people that might be reading this, both the original recipients and even extended to us, to, to feel the gravity of what he is about to invite us into. I urge you, I beg you, I'm pleading with you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. I'll invite you to grab a seat. Uh, it really is uh, two very short, very simple verses. Um, but but Peter, you, you see kind of this fatherly 
posture that he takes, um, that he was probably responsible for having shared the gospel with many of these people and loved them dearly and cared about them, or he wouldn't be going out of his way to uh, write some letters and to encourage and to train them. So he's taken a very fatherly, very loving posture towards these Christians, towards this church. Uh, He loves them. I I love that he starts that out by reminding them that they are beloved. Uh, They're they're loved by Peter. They are loved by God. Uh, You can feel, because this text particularly is not just something that we need to know and to understand. you, You need to feel the desperation Peter has. Right, so so he, he loves them, they're beloved, he's concerned for their souls. He has an urgency about him that I, I think he's trying to, if he could, kind of reach through the pages, grab them maybe by the shoulders and say, hey, wake up, this is way more important than maybe you think or you feel that it is. And so as a father, as a spiritual father to them, he is going to uh, encourage them uh, towards a couple things, and I want to unpack these for a moment. But first, let's look at that word, urge, okay? Everybody say, Urge. But say it again, urge. This is not the command. This is like the emotion behind what Peter's going to ask us to do. Uh, this is him saying, this is incredibly serious. You, you need to take this uh, with, with, with some gravity. Uh, years ago, actually a long time ago, uh, I was uh, trying to think back. I think I was around 20 years old, uh, and I grew up. My grandfather was a bivocational uh, pastor. He had a full-time job with my dad. They owned a prosthetic business making, making artificial arms and legs. Uh, but then on the side, my, fa- my grandfather was a pastor for about 55 years. Uh, and for a big chunk of that, he had actually learned Spanish, and he was uh, not only bivocational but bilingual. Uh, and he had planted a Spanish-speaking church in the panhandle, but he was also involved in a lot of mission work in Mexico. Uh, And so I grew up learning to speak Spanish from a young age from him uh, and traveling with my grandfather to Mexico quite a few times. And one time I ended up there on my own. Uh, Papa was not with me on this trip to a very dangerous border town in Mexico. Uh, And I had tourists written all over me. I mean, I I didn't have the fanny pack, but pretty close to like the visor and the fanny pack that if you wanted to like pick somebody out of a crowd uh, that would look like a tourist, it would probably be the young 20-year-old white guy that with the backpack, right? And so and this at this moment in time was an incredibly dangerous city. Uh, there had been a lot of uh, different crimes committed against especially American tourists, uh, and I was in a very dangerous neighborhood. And I remember the pastor that we were working with uh, that had become a good friend of ours uh, over the years, Pastor Somohuano, um, was there with me and his son, Arturo. And we were there, and I decided one night that I wanted to go down this long, dark street in this really rough neighborhood in the middle of the night looking like a tourist, visor, fanny pack, you know, dollar bills hanging out of all my pockets. And thinking, you know, this is a great idea. I'm just going to go down there because nothing is better than street tacos in Mexico. Amen? And uh, I, was, I was fairly oblivious. I was fairly naive. And Pastor Somohuano has said, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. And I, you know, said, well, you know, it'll be fine. Uh, to which he decided that he would urge me. No, this, you don't understand. From my perspective, he would say, uh, you, you're naive and oblivious to, to some reality, and I'm just urging you, you should probably not do that. Um, there's a high probability that if you do something incredibly bad happens to you, and I remember thinking, well, I should probably listen to him because this is not just like giving some advice that's like, well, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, he, he was giving me an 
an incredible, urgent message. Like, no, I see things from a different perspective. You, Jason, obviously don't feel the gravity of this like you should. I'm urging you, okay? That's the sense I get, not just for Peter, perhaps with them, but maybe even God right now with us, um, that, 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 that God is urging us to take sin seriously, and I wonder if, if some of us need to just listen to that and think, you know what, I've kind of grown a little bit complacent. And I, I don't really treat sin and the dangers of it like I should. And maybe I'm just kind of uh, become oblivious or naive. Uh, and so there's so much packed into not even just the command that Peter's going to give, but his heart and emotion behind it, this urgency. Like, listen, you, th- you need to listen to what I'm saying. Because Peter had a different perspective. He had, he had lived life a long time. He had seen a lot of people, seen a lot of, uh, a lot of destruction by sin. And so I don't want to breeze past that word where Peter's like, I'm not just giving you some advice to take it or leave it. With, with everything in me, I am begging you and I'm pleading with you and I am urging you. Okay, that's not the command. That is the attitude behind the command. Here's the command. Uh, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, that's a pretty simple uh, command, abstain from the passions of the flesh. So this morning, uh, I'm going to unpack this, and here's the four things that we're going to look at. Uh, if, if we're going to, to, to feel Peter's urgency and to try to listen to what he's saying and, and obey it and respond to it, uh, the number one, we need to know what the, quote, passions of the flesh are. That, that's the first thing. What are the passions of the flesh? Number two, why is he, is he urging us to abstain? Why is he so uh, emphatic about us uh, dealing with this? Number three, then how can we, uh, how do we abstain? And number four, what is the result if we do? Uh, and it's all here in this text. So first thing, what are the quote, passions of the flesh. Uh, Sounds like the title of a cheap soap opera, does it not? The passions of the flesh, and probably it is, which is ironic, right? Uh, Like that phrase uh, is, in one way or another, um, it encompasses a lot of things in the New Testament, but basically um, this is talking about sin, like the sinful desires that come from a broken nature, Uh, the desires of the human body and the desires of the human mind that have been corrupted uh, by sin. Uh, and, and in the first couple centuries of Christianity, uh, there was a very a towering figure named Augustine. Uh, and Augustine um, has written a lot of things that has been helpful for the church for centuries. Um, but he talked a lot about just the nature of sin. And he, in his book, Confessions, talks a lot about uh, his sexual sin struggle. Uh, he was very open about that in his writing. Um, but how he would talk about uh, sin or quote like the passions of the flesh as he called them inordinate desires. So he would say they're, they're normally the sin that ruins your life and my life and gets us into deep trouble. They're not bad desires. They're normally good desires that have an inordinate place where they find some unhealthy level or uh, these good desires that have been broken and corrupted. Let me read from Ephesians 2 uh, verses 1 through 3. This is going to be on the screen here. This is the Apostle Paul writing to another church uh, and he says this, and he's talking about really th- this is the story of every Christian. If you're a Christian, 
in the room, this at, at some level is your biography, is your story. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the, quote, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Paul admits that that's everyone's story. In some way or another, we all followed the broken, inordinate passions of our mind and our body, and it was sinful and destructive. So the, like, what are the passions of the flesh? They're, they're normally... good desires that are broken or marred or corrupted by sin. A couple things. Normally, normally they're a good thing that have, have turned into some, in some way or another, a God thing. Okay. Um, Is the desire for food a good thing? Yes, like without it, you're, you're going to starve to death. But uh, when this desire to food kind of spills over in an inordinate way to gluttony, it becomes a very bad thing. Uh, the, wine, is wine a good thing? Some of you are like, that's a trick question. <laughs> wine is a good thing. It's, it's spoken of so many times in the Bible as a blessing. But it, it, if it's an inordinate desire, then it becomes an incredibly dangerous and destructive thing. And you can put all the other alcoholic beverages under that umbrella, right? Like, it's like, you know, the Bible talks about not getting drunk with wine. Some of you are like, what about bourbon? It doesn't mention that. I think that's safe. No, like that, let's just say alcohol, like, like, in inordinate desire takes that to a unhelpful, unhealthy, very destructive thing. Why? Because our sinful nature, our nature is broken. Uh, what about a concern for self? Like self-preservation, that's a good thing. But when it's taken too far and we become self-absorbed and self-centric and the world revolves around us, that is a, a bad and a sinful thing. What about work? Is work a good thing? Absolutely. Work was, it it existed before the fall. Uh, Work is a good thing, but if it's an inordinate desire, it becomes uh, workaholism and can destroy a lot of things. Uh, Sex. Is sex a good thing? (laughs) Again, not a trick question, right? If just one of the spouse said yes and the other, no, never mind. Yeah, of course, God is, God is the one that designed it and, and praise God for that. Amen. But if it's taken in an inordinate way, it creates so much destruction and chaos. So it's like these inordinate desires that because of sin were broken, were, 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 there's something corrupted in us, then the, the natural, quote, passions of the flesh are, 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 are sinful and they lead towards destruction. There's a few different lists in the New Testament that just kind of bullet point begin to itemize different sins or different, quote, passions of the flesh. Uh, And I won't read all of them to you. Uh, They are very colorful also. A lot of things that uh, the depraved man uh, and, and, and heart of man can do. And so there is no such thing as an exhaustive list. Um, but there are a lot of very detailed lists. And again, to answer the first question, if, if Peter's like, listen, I urge you 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We need to know what those things are. So what are the passions of the flesh? Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 19 through 21 uh, is one of those lists. Uh, and I'm not going to go you know, for each one and give a little sermonette about it, but we're going to uh, read this list and kind of back up because like Peter would say, look, you need to be aware of these things because they're waging war against your soul. Right, The only thing worse than being in a spiritual battle is being in a spiritual battle and not knowing it and not being aware that you are and kind of oblivious to that. So uh, Galatians chapter 5, uh, Paul is going to list out what he calls the works of the flesh, and this is a, a handful of them. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay, that's a good place to start if we're asking the question, like, I'm trying to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What are they? Because I want to know if they're uh, waging war against my soul. Uh, So let's back up. Those first three, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, uh, they're they're very similar. They're they're almost all underneath that first kind of term of sexual immorality. Um, And I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this for a couple reasons. Number one, it's the first one on the list. Uh, And if you look at multiple lists in the New Testament that talk about passions of the flesh or different sins, this is one of the only ones that is on almost every single list, and it's almost always first. Why? Does a lot of damage. Like you talk about the least common denominator for the way the passions of the flesh will wreak havoc on someone's soul, on a culture. Like you can't get very far without talking about this. And it would be a huge miss if the church decides, well, this is uncomfortable. Let's just not talk about it because it's destroying people. I mean, uh, uh, like it's, it's touched, I would venture, probably in one way or another, every life in this room, every soul in this room. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about it consistently because the Bible does. So that, that word sexual immorality, and you, many of you, if you've been around a long time, you've heard a lot of this. Um, the word is pornea, uh, which is what I call a junk drawer term. Like it's a very broad term um, that uh, you can put any type of sexual sin under, Okay. Uh, any type of sex before marriage um, that would be involved in this, any th- which is the biblical word for that, it's fornication, right? Any type of adultery uh, of the body or of the mind or the heart outside of marriage would be under this. Any type of uh, pornography or anything that uh, maybe has never happened in the flesh but just happened in the mind or heart, it all fits underneath this. Uh, and, and Peter, like, if Peter was concerned about that particular sin destroying those particular Christians in that particular culture, do you think he would have an urgency about that today in the context that we live in? Everybody say yes. Yes. Holy cow. This, like, sexual sin is wreaking havoc 
on our culture, on people's lives. It's, it's literally waging war against souls. And Peter says, like, I, I'm urging you, abstain from the passions of the flesh. That, that's one of the first ones. And I don't think I have to spend, honestly, a lot of time convincing you that sexual sin is wreaking havoc on your soul. But we'll take a little bit of time to talk about it because obviously the Bible talks about it. Secular studies have very quickly found out and they all agree the same thing. It's so damaging to your, uh, to your marriage, to your soul. Uh, the levels of shame and guilt and depression and anxiety that come with, uh, deal with, with uh, sexual sin. Uh, sex outside of marriage, if you're sexually active before you're married, the rates of divorce skyrocket over 200%. Uh, it sabotages marriage before it begins. Any type of uh, promiscuous uh, promiscuousness or any type of pornography use. Uh, normally, uh, short circuits our ability to have uh, true intimacy um, because what you see is that you kind of begin this journey where you bond with somebody and then it breaks and then you bond and it breaks and then at some point you lose the capacity to bond with someone um, because it has trained you not to use sex as a way to truly uh, connect in a covenant relationship with, where both are committed to uh, selflessness and to giving, but it completely destroys that and teaches us that it's about self, self-gratification at the expense of anybody else. There are so many things about it that are waging war against the human soul. Uh, infidelity goes up in marriage if there's premarital sex. And w with pornography, it just, it, it, it rewires the brain. Uh, it, 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 especially in that age of like 10 to 20 uh, for kids, which this is a big deal. So I'm going to uh, step into kind of parent mode for a moment. And, and like as a Christian, Peter's saying you need to you need to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they're waging war against you. So as a parent, you need to learn how to teach your kids how to do that, right? How to teach your kids that like all of the, uh, the natural, quote, natural impulses that they have are not good and godly. Their impulses are broken and they need to learn to uh, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Uh, we, I could share stat after stat after stat to just simply try to convince you that sexual sin is not as the world paints it just fun and dandy and has no problems. It is unbelievably destructive to the human soul. That's just the first one. Idolatry. Um, you know, that, that's basically uh, treating anything um, good as God or treating anything as uh, in, inside of creation as creator or swapping uh, creation and creator and just giving anything other than God himself um, the ultimate place in our lives, the ultimate uh, response, the ultimate hope. And we're all guilty of this at one way or another. If we're not constantly solely worshiping God, then, then, then we're idolatrous. And uh, Peter says, like, that's damaging to the soul. Uh, sorcery, 
any kind of, you know, witchcraft, dark, dark magic, anything like that. Enmity, uh, that, that's hatred, that's like uh, the hostility that kind of implies this um, refusal to forgive. I'm sure you've heard the term that, um, or, or the phrase somebody coined, I can't remember off the top of my head who said it, but uh, they said if you, re- if you refuse to forgive and you just live your life uh, holding grudges, then it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die, uh, that it has a, a negative effect on you. It's waging war against our soul. Enmity, strife, jealousy. Anybody in here ever been jealous? Yeah. There's something about that jealousy that comes from our flesh that's damaging to the soul. Fits of anger. If you've got an unbridled anger problem that is waging war against your soul, probably having negative effects on your relationships, uh, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, so much of the, 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 the market that we live in and the commercialized nature of things is designed around uh, trying to make us envious so that we'll purchase the next thing. Drunkenness. This is a bad problem in Midland, Texas, um, it, because it can be very socially acceptable. Uh, I think a lot of people, probably people in this room, you need to consider uh, if, if, if your drinking habits are waging war against your soul orgies and things like these. What are, this was the first question, what are the passions of the flesh? That's one small list. There's a lot of these broken, inordinate desires that if left unbridled, they will wreak havoc, destroy, because they're waging war against our souls. Number two, why is Peter urging us to abstain? Uh, Two things. Number one, because he says that our, our, our flesh or our sinful nature is waging war against your soul. Like that, that's, I, I don't know that you could be more like dr- dramatic about it. Like he's obviously trying to, to wake people up. Like this is not neutral territory. Like there's not the third option where like, oh, can I, I can get engaged in this or I can, uh, I can fight it or I can not or I can just be like Switzerland, try to just be neutral. Like the, no. There's there's only two options and uh, and you know one of the great um, Puritans uh, wrote and we're going to get into that in a few moments but he talks about uh, that you have two options you be killing sin or sin be killing you there's not a third option just like I'm just not going to get engaged with this so why is is he so urgent because those things whether we realize it or not know it or not believe it or not, are waging war against our soul. Here's another way that I would phrase that. Um, We need to be convinced that sin is bad for us. And how simple does that sound? But so many people, I don't think we understand how bad it is for the soul. Because, uh, you know, take take this for example. Uh, How many of you like sugar? Um, How many of you have a problem saying no to sugar? Like I have, I have some real bad weaknesses. Sweet, I have a bad sweet tooth. Donuts are kryptonite. Uh, why is it that you can know something is not good for you and yet have such a hard time not doing it? Like, why is that? It should be so simple. Oh, I know, I know that's not good for me. What is it that's drawing me to that? Why can I? Uh, can I? Why do I keep doing what I not want to do? Like he's urged, because it's waging war against our soul. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul understands this struggle, uh, and he talks about it often. So what, what, what Peter is talking about is there's two things at play, okay? 
inside the, the heart and soul of a believer is there is still this flesh that is broken that has desires to do things that are harmful and damaging. And we have also the Spirit of God that is at, those, those two things are at war, but they're both at war kind of inside of us. Listen to how Paul, and, and I, I, I know that you're going to connect with this. I connect with this, and I, I'm so grateful um, that Paul is honest enough to talk about his own struggle. He says, but I say, this is Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the flesh and the Spirit are both in. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the, the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In Romans 7, Paul says, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and sometimes I can't find a way to do what I want to do. Why is that? There's an internal battle, an internal war going on. Paul talks about how the spirit is willing, but sometimes the flesh is weak. He's urgent because there's a lot at stake and we are at war. Number three, how can we? If Peter's so urgently prodding us and encouraging us and begging and pleading for us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and now, okay, so let's say, okay, I'm convinced, sin bad. All right, somebody sent me a picture of, y'all remember Sinbad? <laughs> uh, and the quote was like, you thought sin good, but, and then just a picture of Sinbad. I, uh, I saved you. I didn't show you that. I just told you about it. Like, you're convinced. Okay, like, uh, I, I get this war's going on. I believe Peter. Now, how can I actually do that? A couple things that um, uh, are theological and highly practical uh, also. Four things to try to heed and obey what Peter's saying. Number one, you need to decide who you're going to believe. You, you, you literally need to decide who you're going to believe about sin because the world would say, well, and this is the lie that's been going on since the beginning of time. This is the first page of your Bible. God says something about sin, says it's bad. Satan comes in and is like, what did God really say? Like, he didn't really say that. And even if he did, he's just trying to ruin your fun. Is that not the same narrative in the world? Well, you know what? Did God really say sex before marriage was that bad? I mean, surely he's just trying to ruin your fun. Like, did God really say that too much alcohol is a problem? Or is like, no, that's just kind of how I unwind and how I... Like, did God really... Like, you need to decide at the end of the day who you're going to believe. And God speaks so very clearly about what is sin and what is not sin in his word. You need to decide if you're going to believe that or if you're going to believe the, 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 the voices from inside, the, the voices from the culture. And there's plenty that will say, you know what? Those are, those are outdated. Those aren't sin anymore. You don't understand. Like culture has progressed. <laughs> has it? Are we doing better you need to decide who you're going to believe. If, if, if your soul is at stake, I would trust the one who made it and is pursuing it and loves it. Decide who you're going to believe, particularly about the nature of sin. Number two, uh, abstain. Some of you think, you think, God, he's so brilliant. <laughs> no, abstain. And, and in our vernacular, that kind of has a passive uh, feel to it. I like to abstain, just kind of, it's like this passive pass, uh, but it, it, really in, 
and not just the original language this was written in, um, but in other places that talk about sin. It's not talking about a passive. Uh, it's talking about a very active, aggressive fleeing oftentimes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, quote, very clearly says, flee from sexual immorality. This is not just a passive kind of like, well, I'm not going to get and get. No, this is like run, flee, actively get away from it. Uh, do you remember the story of Joseph? Some of you do. I'm sure some of you maybe have never heard it. Uh, Joseph was uh, a man in the Old Testament, a very godly man, uh, and he found himself in this situation with, uh, in, in this home with this woman who was trying to seduce him, uh, and he wasn't just passive like, no, not today, right? What did he do? He fled. He saw, this is not good. I need to get as far away from this as I can. So he runs away. Actually, remember the story. Like leaving, she grabs his cloak and he gets away and now she's holding his jacket. Like that's such a good picture of whatever it is on that list that you're prone to struggle with. Don't just passively be like, you know what? I'm gonna try not to do that today. No, like flee, abstain, flee, actively try to get Away. Number three, how can we um, do what Peter's asking us to do? Get serious about accountability and encouragement. Okay, get serious about a relationship or two where someone can help hold you accountable and encourage you. And those two are kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, I think it's interesting that over the years, a lot of Christians um, think that um, like a really deep relationship of accountability is optional. And it just, it, it, it doesn't seem to me optional. Like it seems, it seems wise and helpful. Get serious about someone who can actually speak into your life, who's not impressed with you, uh, who can ask you some very difficult questions, uh, who can keep encouraging you when you get tired of fighting sin. They're going to remind you there's a lot at stake uh, to flee the passions of your flesh and to, uh, to continually fight. Number four, uh, to walk in the Spirit and to put your sin to death. Those two are also two sides of the same coin. Uh, this is what Paul says in Romans 8. He's talking about fighting our, our sinful nature. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's talking about the flesh and the Spirit, and the only way to put to death the flesh and live in the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, Paul says, like, that's how you put the, 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 this other thing to death. It's waging war against your soul. John Owen uh, was a Puritan, uh, and as a good Puritan would do, he wrote an entire book on this one verse. Um, it's called The Mortification of Sin. It's an incredible book, healthy read. But he talks about this idea of be killed. Like, like don't try to manage your sin. Like, Jesus died so that we can put our sin to death. Walk in the Spirit, put your sin to death, not manage it, not try to cope with it, not just try to keep it at bay, put it to death. Number three, number, uh, sorry, the last question I wanted to ask this morning uh, is what is the result? So let's say, okay, we heed Peter's advice now. Uh, we're learning to put our sin to death. Uh, we're learning to what he says, live honorably among Gentiles or among non-believers. What can we expect to happen. 
Uh, I'm going to jump back, and this I don't think this is on the screen because I wanted you to just listen uh, as I read what, what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, and what he is saying is basically, uh, as, as we learn to abstain from the passions of the flesh, there's, there's two different scenarios that can play out. One is if we don't. The first one is if we just yield to these, this is the life that this produces, and the second one is the life that's produced if you walk in the Spirit. They are very, very different pictures. He says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. So if we don't fight sin, this is what tends to happen, or this would describe the person that is given in. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I was preaching this one time years ago, and somebody said, that just described me. Like almost all of those describe me. What do I do? And the answer is, oh, that, that's why Jesus has come to set you free, to change you. And so he, he keeps going. He says, I, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit. He's like, this is a whole other package that, that God actually wants for you that's found in walking in the Spirit. Like, this should describe the person who's obeying what Peter's urging us to do. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and who wouldn't want this to describe their life, right? If, if the first list, like, I want that to describe my life. I can't help, okay? But if the second is like, God, that's, that's what I want my life to be marked by. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Couple more things, real quickly. What happens when you do the? Well, number one, the Holy Spirit changes your life and produces the fruit. Where that's what your life is marked by more than the first lift. Uh, a few other things that happen when we uh, begin to like put sin to death and live godly, honorable lives. And there's some effects that you should be aware of that he talks about uh, in verse 12. He says, so if your conduct is, quote, honorable among the Gentiles, expect these three things. Number one, he says, when they speak evil of you. How many of you that caught you off guard? Like, wait a minute. I thought if I was godly, they would say nice things about me. He doesn't say, he doesn't even say if they speak. He's like, oh, they're like, the world's still going to talk bad about you. Like, it's just coming. Don't be surprised. It's like, well, Jesus was so, so godly, and then the world responded. They were just so nice to him. No, he was so godly, they, they hated him, and we can expect the same thing. It says, when they speak evil of us, so you can expect if you are living a godly life among non-believers for them to not like them, to be frustrated by that. Number two says, but also they will see your good deeds. Oftentimes, there are things going on as a non-Christian views a Christian in a non-judgmental way, trying to live out their life and their faith. They, they may say something, but oftentimes there's something very different going on in their heart and their mind. Some of y'all, this is your story. Before you were a Christian, you're like, that, that Christian, God, they frustrated me and I said bad things about them, but I was thinking about their life all the time and it was different. Like, they're, they're, he's like, they're, they're, they're going to say bad things, but... 
They're going to see your good deeds. And then it says some of them are going to glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? That if you're living a godly life in front of people that may say bad things, but internally some of them might be moved by that and pushed towards Jesus and the gospel. And here's the hard thing is that some of you may never know that. You may never know the effect that your life living out a a living testimony with somebody may have. Um, But Peter says there's going to be some people at the throne worshiping God, glorifying God on the day of visitation because another Christian lived a faithful life in their, in their world. Um, I want to close this on just some reminder that this is, this is good news, right? This, you're not coming into just a sermon on what to do and not to do. This is all couched in, um, in the gospel that we're not trying to uh, deal with sin so that we can be accepted and that we're doing this from a position of being fully accepted and belonging to God because of Christ. Uh, and I think it's important to be reminded that Jesus has come to put sin to death so that we can walk in victory, we can have freedom, and that you're not ever going to have to do this alone. Uh, I want to close with this idea. It's from Philippians uh, chapter 1. Uh, when Paul says this, he says, Don't worry, because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So as you fight sin, remember that Jesus has come to put sin to death and he's going to keep working on you. He's more committed to your sanctification, your holiness than even you are. Let's pray. Father, I pray in our hearts that you would help us to feel the urgency that your spirit stirred up in Peter. God, if any of us have grown lax to sin or our flesh, I pray that you might uh, awaken us Awaken us to your power, awaken us to your grace, awaken us to the life that you've designed us by the fruit of your spirit. God, I pray that we would not feel any sense of guilt or condemnation, but we would feel a sense that you have called us in to a godly, holy, and different life. God, I pray your spirit would enable and empower us to obey your words. Uh, We love you, and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for speaking to us. I pray that we this morning receive your words and would you help us to respond in a godly way. We love you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.